Coming up today, we delve into WeWork's financials, look at what's really happening with COVID-19 in North Korea, and get moderately angry about generic startup adverts. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Natasha Bernal. Hello. Amit Kawala. Hello. And Matt Burgess. Hello. This was the week when Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg said the platform will halt the algorithm-driven recommendations of political groups. He said people don't want politics and fighting to take over their experience on the platform. The move comes after social media platforms, including Facebook, were blamed for their role in the violent storming of the US Capitol by a pro-Trump mob. This was also the week when Norway's Data Protection Authority announced it plans to fine LGBT dating app Grindr £8.5 million, which is around 10% of Grindr's estimated global revenue. The regulator said the app had been illegally selling user data to advertisers and flouting GDPR rules. An army of amateur traders launched a siege on Wall Street this week that has shaken up markets and left seasoned hedge funds reeling. It started with GameStop, a games retailer whose shares have been sent flying by gangs of traders coordinating moves on Reddit messaging boards. The company's shares surged 435% since Friday, bringing year-to-date gains to 1,745%. And finally, this was the week when it was revealed that Apple secured its most profitable quarter ever in the last three months of 2020. The company's sales for the period totaled $111.4 billion, driven by the release of new iPhone models. $111.4 billion in a single quarter. Yeah, I know. It sounds like a, a, the kind of summer Bond villain might recite as a ransom demand, doesn't it? It, it almost sounds like a typo, right? It's a phenomenal sum of money. There was a figure doing the rounds that Apple's quarterly revenues um, now exceed the annual GDP of more than half of the world's countries. It's just such a huge company. And you would have thought that the pandemic might have slowed down the amount of investment that people were making in very expensive phones and laptops and accessories, but seemingly not. Apple goes from strength to strength. Um, Natasha, I don't know what you think, but maybe we should uh, ditch the stories that we were going to talk about and spend the next hour and a half really going into detail on the uh, the GameStop Wall Street story. Uh, are you up I'm for that? I'm fascinated. Yeah, it's, it's, it's genuinely the story of, of the year so far, I guess, which is, is a bit tragic because it just shows how little entertainment we have. But yeah, watching this all unfold was was hilarious. I mean, the, the fact that you had sort of, you know, internet aficionados uh, taking on Wall Street and uh, beating up their own game and, and people going, why? I hate the free market. It doesn't work for me anymore. <laughs> you broke it. Um, it's, it's pretty it's been pretty interesting, definitely. And watching what the fallout will be next will be very good. So, yeah. Not interesting enough for us to talk about on the podcast, though. Uh, So we'll leave it there. Uh, (laughs) Next week. Next week. Maybe next week. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So what did we learn this week? Let's start with Matt Burgess. Uh, This week, I learned that some scientists and researchers are starting to put economic values on uh, some animals' uh, sort of impact on the planet and the benefit they bring to the planet. And they've particularly been doing this with elephants to begin with. Uh, So each African forest elephant, according to the uh, International Monetary Fund, is worth $1.75 million. uh, And that's based on the sort of service it provides to the planet. Um, And basically, that is uh, why they're doing this, which is a bit of a sort of like controversial way to sort of think about uh about nature and the environment is to show that essentially that if a poacher is uh killing an animal and selling its uh ivory uh then they'll get maybe like forty thousand dollars but basically they're, they're making the argument and trying to reinforce why we need to protect nature because elephants bring so much value uh through sort of like economic means and also planetary uh planetary gains uh overall it's a funny way to come at it isn't it right that the only way that you can persuade people not to shoot an elephant to turn its tusks into trinkets is to say that it's worth nearly $2 million when it's, it's not actually worth that, right? No one, no one can invest in an elephant. 
no, it's not. It's not the same as Apple and, and or um, uh, traders aren't sharing stuff on Wall Street, but uh, it's just a different way to get people thinking about the environment and sort of what we can uh, do to protect it. I guess it's an it's an interesting thought experiment for sure. Amit, what did you learn this week? I learned that we didn't start using the word orange to refer to the colour until the 1540s. So before that, it was referred to as red or yellow red. Uh, so that's why people with orange hair are called redheads, even though their hair obviously isn't red. And we, why we call the birds red robins, despite the fact that if you look at them, they're actually orange. Are robins orange, though? Look it up. I challenge that. Do a Google image search right now. <laughs> I dare you. Uh, me clacking away my keyboard isn't <laughs> you dare me um, okay I'll, I'll, I'll do it quietly while um, while Natasha uh, tells us what she learned this week I learned that this week marks the 100th anniversary of the word robot the word was first coined by Czech intellectual Karol Chapek in a play called R.U.R., which is short for Rossum's Universal Robots, which was about unwilling slaves of humanity destined to rise up and destroy their makers. The play was a smash hit, and when it was translated, the word robota, which means forced labour in Czech, was introduced into the English language as robot. Very, very strong etymology fact there. Love that. Amit, Thank you, you. you were right to dare me. Uh, robins are in fact orange. I feel like I've been living a lie my whole life. Um, but thank you for helping me see the, the, the true nature of robins, I guess. <laughs> the scales have fallen from your eyes. You've taken the orange pill. Um, yeah. <laughs> I learned this week that 10% of gamers would rather their homes be destroyed than lose their game save data, which is a bit curious, really, when you think that most of that data is stored in the cloud and it would be fairly terrible for you to lose your home and all of your belongings versus losing where you'd got to in Zelda or civilizations. But but maybe I'm just not into games enough. Um, if, if you are, if you class yourself as a gamer and you would happily see your home destroyed um, before you lost your prized game save data, then email podcast at wired.co.uk. How, how many things would you destroy <laughs> so that you could keep playing your beloved video game from where you left off? Let us know. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Our first story this week, talking of destroying things, is about WeWork and it's more than concerning financials, Natasha. Yeah, so um, earlier this month, WeWork's chief executive, Sandeep Mathrani, gave a rather extraordinary interview. He said that WeWork is going to aim for a new IPO and that the company is on track for profitability by Q4 2021. Now, for the people that have been paying attention to the company in the past year or so, this sounds like a rather ridiculous thing to say. After all, we're in the midst of a global pandemic that has sent office workers home. There's no date to return to the office. And when we do, companies are likely to want to reduce their office space to accommodate a hybrid workforce. None of this is good news for WeWork, whose bread and butter is selling high cost office space in swanky locations with perks for the employees that work there. So we decided to take a look at the state of WeWork and whether the figures back up Mithrani's bold statements. Now, for someone like me who you know probably only pays attention to WeWork when they break into the the main news cycle for, for you know their founder doing something ridiculous, what kind of shape were they in entering this crisis? I know there was a lot of stuff around Adam Newman a while back, but for people who haven't been paying attention, how prepared was WeWork going into the pandemic? Yeah, so despite having really big name investors like SoftBank bankrolling its operations, this pandemic has been no walk in the park for WeWork. The company was already in crisis mode and the pandemic has done nothing but exacerbate the cash flow problem that already existed. But to explain what happened, we have to look back to 2019 when the company first tried to IPO. Now, if everything had gone according to plan, the shared office provider would be busy spending between $3 billion and $4 billion raised in a blockbuster public listing. Banks would have granted the company a further $6 billion in loans if the IPO had been successful. So it would have spent 2020 getting its house in order and using that money raised to try to reach profitability. But that is basically the opposite of what has happened in a rather public sort of takedown within the space of a few weeks that IPO was shelved. WeWork had dropped to less than half of its pre-IPO value and its controversial founder, Adam Newman, who was known as much for his love of marijuana and partying as he was for buying real estate, was gone. 
But the company's accounts for 2019, which were published at the beginning of January 2021, so earlier this month, show just how much trouble it was in. So despite this rampant expansion making global revenues almost double from $1.8 billion to $3.5 billion, the the business saw losses balloon in 2019. So these losses widened from $1.7 to $3.9 billion, which is an increase of 129%. So those losses were growing at a faster rate than its income. Now bear with me, this same, same picture was replicated in its UK arm, which is called WeWork International, where despite rental income, almost doubling from £35.8 million to £68.4 million, the losses for 2019 more than tripled to £231.7 million. So again, this is like an absolutely catastrophic situation for a company that relies on, on income uh, from, from rentals and not coming in throughout 2020. WeWork's ability to burn through cash has always you know, made it look a little bit like a dangerous investment. By 2019, the company controlled 528 buildings across 111 cities in 29 countries, right? According to its website, the fact that the public listing fell through and all of this has happened doesn't actually slow WeWork's pace down. As of November 2020, it controlled 859 buildings, which, you know, is a big growth from 528 across 151 cities in 38 countries. Although Mathrani told Reuters that his streamlining had led to WeWork exiting over 100 locations. So we're looking at a company that despite massive losses, despite a failed IPO, has continued its pace of sort of gobbling up bits of real estate across the world. And it's basically adding to the losses of its bottom line. So in In short, WeWork spent 2020 hemorrhaging cash on rents and Adam Newman's $7.7 million a month payoff rather than getting its house in order. The plan to stabilise the business by making thousands of people redundant was completely blown out of the water by a pandemic which turned its global offices into ghost towns. It's not the greatest situation for a company to find itself in, but also it's not entirely unexpected a lot of startups particularly gig economy startups and we work is kind of in that kind of form they burn through a lot of cash they need to scale they feel they need to scale really really quickly and become the dominant force in the market now we work's problem was that even before the pandemic it wasn't doing that particularly successfully then the pandemic came along removed all of its ability to make any money pretty much So now it's going into 2021. No one's in offices. It's still got hundreds and hundreds of buildings to manage across the world. It's still not profitable. It's still nowhere near an IPO. How does WeWork survive? Yeah, you paint a very bleak picture, James, but it's accurate. There is a fundamental flaw in, in WeWork's business, which that it's built on signing really long, expensive leases on space that it rents out in a multitude of very short te- short-term deals. And so that has exposed it to a near-ruinous level of risk. And that risk has become existential after a year in which a large proportion of the company's members have just picked up and left. So figures provided by WeWork show that its total membership fell by 11% in the third quarter of 2020 alone. So in order to stem the losses from this and and try to recover uh, some of those losses and and turn around 2021, Mathrani would have to address that fundamental flaw in WeWork's strategy, which is an over-reliance on freelancers and startups whose year-long contracts can be broken after six months, rather than larger corporates, which are known as enterprise clients by WeWork, who have to keep paying for unused office space right through the pandemic. So at the time of the proposed IPO, if you look at the state of the business, around 40% of WeWork's members fell into the, into the latter category, so enterprise clients who had to pay no matter what. By the third quarter of 2020, that figure had, had risen to 54%, though that change is only partly due to the company's success in attracting new clients. I mean, yes, it would help that you know, Deloitte, for example, signed a deal for 35,000 square feet of office space in Manchester city centre. But the overall percentages have also been skewed by the loss of so many smaller clients who have left. So 54% looks like a growth from 40%. But if you look at the amount of other people who have left, it's actually just a larger percentage of the overall whole rather than an actual growth in of itself. And those large corporate clients that they're trying to attract aren't exactly flocking to WeWork to plug the gap 
in the middle of this pandemic. Also, um, WeWork hasn't really done a lot to ingratiate itself to many of its renters during this crisis. Now, WeWork says it was able to offer con concessions to the overwhelming majority of member businesses that have requested one. So basically saying, you can't pay, we'll try to give you a break, that's fine. But during the pandemic, the company's actually been accused of profound hypocrisy over its appointment of debt collectors to pursue customers at the same time as the shared office provider is negotiating with its own landlords to try to get out of liabilities to pay its own leases. So the experts our reporter Margaret Taylor spoke to said that WeWork would likely lose at least a third of its revenue from renters whose six-month leases expired during the pandemic and were not renewed. WeWork did not provide projections on its financial performance for the full year, but said that global income for the third quarter of 2020, which are the latest figures that they have, was down by 13% from $934 million to $811 million. So as if you think about that, so you've got the eye-watering losses on the, on the one side, but then if we delve into the company accounts for 2019, it shows an even bleaker picture for the UK, which is one of the key markets for WeWork. The UK arm was balance sheet insolvent at the close of that, that year, as its net liabilities ballooned from £75.3 in 2018 to £290.4 million. Pounds. So a note in the 2019 accounts, which again were released earlier this month, says that the global business for WeWork has confirmed its willingness and ability to provide ongoing financial support, effectively propping up the UK business for a period of at least 12 months from the date of approval of the financial statements, which all sounds very technical, but basically means we'll bail out the UK arm of WeWork for basically the next 12 months at least until this crisis passes. Now, WeWork claims it does have the money to do this. It claims its balance sheet remains strong with approximately $3.6 billion of cash and unfunded cash commitments until the, at the end of Q3. Mithrani has had some success in adding to that cash port to, but by basically putting in place a plan to lay off massive amounts of staff, so thousands of people that have been laid off throughout this crisis, and as a result of the amendment of the leases, which were mentioned by Mithrani, which reduced its long-term lease liabilities by $1.5 billion. So this basically meant that they tried to shave off as many leases as they could without it proving to be impossible for WeWork to, to support. Tried to get out of as many of them as, as possible, uh, but carrying on expanding all the time. All of this, of course, all these Q3 figures saying we've got a pot of, of $3.6 billion of cash was in Q3 of 2020. This was even before a lot of countries were sending people home for second and third lockdowns. In its 2019 accounts, WeWork made a point of saying that COVID-19 was likely to have a negative impact on its 2020 results. But this crisis is spreading into 2021 and the numbers do not support the proclamation of it breaking even this year. So there's obviously a lot going on here, but at the end of the day, a lot of people in particularly UK, which is going to be a market, uh, which is very important, as you say, but also other countries as well, where WeWork is is big, are going to be working from home for quite a while over the next year. Um, there's, there's probably a good chance that many people won't return to offices till maybe the middle of this year uh, or even or even later. So so to make WeWork's plan a reality, where does it have to turn to to, to really uh, actually be able to sort of enact this yeah so you're absolutely right it's, it's very difficult to know if you don't have uh, enough of a pot of money um, by the end of all this crisis it's going to be very difficult for them to say yes we'll, we'll break even by q4 at all the the only logical place for we work to turn to kind of plug those gaps and make sure that that what Mathrani says isn't just a load of hot air, is to turn to the investors who helped push WeWork to where it is right now. Now, there's there's still a problem there. There's obviously a fly in the ointment um, it, at every turn for, for WeWork because it has fewer friends than ever before after this failed IPO. So Fidelity Investments, which is an early investor whose Contra Fund bought $18 million of WeWork shares in 2015, has not mentioned the business at all after being forced to write down its investment by 35% at the end of 2019. While last year, Baltimore-based T. Rowe Price made the highly unusual move of publicly lambasting WeWork. So in a filing to the US Securities and Exchange Commission, the Funhouse says its WeWork investment had been a debacle and a terrible investment that caused outsized headaches and disappointments. Um, 
we, we tried to speak to a spokesperson for this article and they said, actually, we said everything we wanted to about WeWork. So I suppose that love story ends there. But when it comes to WeWork's lenders, really the game isn't about, you know, T. Rowe Price or in fact any any other kind of smaller fund that might have invested at the time of the IPO. The, the story is really about Japan's SoftBank, which has provided more than $11 billion of debt finance to the company and owns 80% of its shares. It's basically the only show in town, if you think about it. But their long-standing relationship has somewhat soured since WeWork's poor performance pushed the conglomerate's own financials into the red. Last year, SoftBank actually pulled out of an agreement to buy $3 billion worth of WeWork shares from early investors, including its former chief executive, Adam Newman. This is a decision that's ended up in court. It was completely fraught, fought over in different headlines. You saw a lot of coverage of, of people basically fighting, saying you've got to do it, them saying we're not going to do it, and so on and so forth. This is, this is going to be a long-running saga. Uh, it does show that it's patience, though, the patience of SoftBank, which is now trying to cut losses on many of its other investments as well, may have reached its limits. So really, when you think about Mathrani's big um, proclamations of we're going to plan for a second IPO, we're going to break even in, in the next year, he, he's put in some legwork to try to fix the woes of this shared office giant and make that happen. But the figures that we have seen ultimately show that more drastic measures need to be taken for it to survive. It needs to persuade SoftBank to reach its hand into its pocket and you know plug some of the gaps. And it needs to show really just a, a massive U-turn the likes of which we would have never seen before in order to fix the the financial uh, woes that it is and and for it to survive to see this very promised post-coronavirus golden age of co-working the fundamental problem with with we work if i understand it correctly is that you can't run a real estate business like this it it sort of took the the startup move fast and break things mentality of the early 2000s and tried to apply it to real estate where you're exposed to huge risks because you're signing very, very expensive contracts on things that are made of bricks and mortar that you yeah. can't get out of. And this is the thing about statements like the one Mathrani made earlier this month. It is quite surprising because it does sound like something that Adam Newman would say rather than something a more conservative leader would say. And this is the thing. You think about um, WeWork's model, and yes, it has huge fundamental flaws, which they could technically fix. But the question is, could they fix this and fix all of the legacy woes and the financial problems that they've they've accumulated over the years to, to then see in this new age of co-working, which supposedly is going to feed into WeWork model it's kind of ironic that we're looking down the barrel of like in the next few months hopefully if things go according to plan um a hybrid workforce that will look for co-working spaces like the ones that we work was offering specifically because that's the way we want to work in the future uh, it would be it would be highly uh, ironic if we work weren't to live to see that happen um but it's, it does seem like it, the figures at the moment unless something has happened which it might be top secret um you never know unless something's happening in the background that nobody knows about these these figures just, just kind of spell out a bit of a of, of a kind of uh it, it's it's so it's such a different picture from what Mathrani is painting that you wonder what kind of you know delusion <laughs> delusion might be going on um with with either the the market or the way that they think this this uh, strategy works look i i have no um reason to to think that that this that Mathrani and his team aren't able to turn around we work but the figures here just don't support what he's saying. And that's that's what it boils down to. You wonder exactly, you know, how, how one could even support the idea of a second IPO if you have not only nothing to back up that statement, but also a legacy of kind of over-promising and under-delivering. So I wish him the best of luck, but what we found doesn't really support what he's saying. The numbers for WeWork have rarely added up. Uh, podcast.wired.co.uk, are you a resident in a WeWork? Is it the sort of place that you'd be looking to head to when we do return to the offices in a more hybrid model? Um, is it a business that deserves to survive, given how badly it's been run and how many people it's let down over its short and very exciting life? Podcast.wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that or anything else that we talk about on the show this week. And of course, we'll include a link to the exhaustive report we did on WeWork in the show notes. Our second story this week, Matt Burgess, a couple of weeks ago, you set yourself the unenviable task of trying to get the truth out of North Korea. How did you get on? 
Yeah, it's been a, 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 a testing couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, as you as you sort of uh, alluded to there, James, I've been reporting a bit around what has happened in North Korea during the pandemic and sort of like the situation uh, as much as we can sort of uh, ascertain uh, what it's like there. Um, and before I go into into those details, just I think it's worth just sort of like reiterating a little bit of context about how different North Korea is as a country to uh, the rest of the world and in particular sort of the Western democracies that we uh, we live in and many probably of our listeners live in as well um so just just for that uh, added picture because i think it is worth uh, considering uh, this all has an impact on its pandemic response um overall um so north korea is still one of the most repress- repressive and totalitarian regimes in the world people generally don't have freedom of movement around the country and it's not uncommon for f- sort of forced uh, internal re- resettlement run- resettlement to happen emigration is illegal and all foreign travel is controlled by the government which sees uh, people uh, defecting or being refugees from the country on a, a fairly frequent basis um, and yeah going and living abroad in some cases when they can um, and while people uh, just for instance while people do have some mobile phone services calls and text messages are monitored monitored by uh, surveillance uh, agencies within the country and smartphone users don't have access to the global internet you can't just get out your phone and tap in google and and go and look at what the pandemic is like all around the world or 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 anywhere um and tied to that information is very much controlled by the government and all the media is state-run media there's no independent uh democratic uh produced journalism or anything like that it's all very much coming out of the the state propaganda units and this just like feeds into the larger array of potential human rights issues across the country um the the country is very much sanctioned uh through economic and trade issues by um by the un and other countries around the world for its insistence and continuing to um create a nuclear program and, and develop nuclear weapons and over the last year as well there have been uh, uh large flooding in in uh, north korea over sort of 2020 which has uh, heightened some of the food supply issues so overall it is obviously a very unpleasant state to live in for many people there and they don't know any different or what the rest of the world is like overall it's a global pandemic barely any part of the world has been spared and there were early predictions that a country like North Korea with an appalling health infrastructure and all of these other problems with famine and totalitarianism, it would really, really struggle if if COVID-19 got in. It also shares a border with China. But so far, we haven't heard much about how the pandemic has hit North Korea, both because it's quite good at keeping secrets, but also there are vague suspicions that Maybe COVID-19 hasn't hit North Korea that hard. So what do we know? So officially, North Korea has recorded no cases of COVID-19 and also uh, no deaths. Weekly reports that, uh, are, pro- that are produced by the World Health, Health Organization for uh, the Southeast Asia region so that uh, people are being tested in North Korea using PCR tests in, and those are being analyzed in 15 different laboratories. But all of the tests that have been done have come back negative. Um, as of January the 8th, the 8th, which was the most recent date for the figures, uh, were available at the time of reporting the story uh, there have been 26,000 people uh, or 26,000 samples tested uh, from North Korea from 13,000 people and all of those had come back negative and sort of looking at the uh, the most recent a few of the most recent weekly reports around sort of like 700 North Koreans uh, out of a population of 25 million are being tested every week and these are figures that it reports to the World Health Organization the World Health Organization uh, in its own report says all points of entry into the country are shut um and all of the people i spoke to for for this piece uh which largely includes uh people that are working at ngos and uh journalists and also sort of watchers and analysts of north korea um sort of doubt these claims a little bit that there have been zero cases in the country um i mean as you as you pointed out james there is a border with china uh china was one of the first places uh, what's the first place where where uh, the pandemic sort of uh, emerged from um and uh, china is one of the biggest sort of um uh, drivers of tourism and trade within uh, north korea so um there is a lot of doubt being cast on that that's not to say that there is necessarily an epidemic going on within north korea uh, one of the big things 
things is we don't know what is actually happening other than these figures that it has reported. Um, but we do know that North Korea acted very quickly in its response to the pandemic. Uh, and it wasn't even a pandemic, uh, technically classified as a pandemic at that time. But in on January 22nd, 2020, so more than a year ago, uh, North Korea shut its borders with uh, China and Russia, which stopped the tourism and trade coming from China when it is allowed, and obviously placed greater burdens on people being able to leave those that could leave uh, for various internet were permitted to leave uh, could no longer do so um, and since then uh, the borders have not opened so it's been more than a year when the borders have been fully shut border security has been increased and larger sort of buffer zones have been placed around the border with China to stop people crossing and overall this is a little bit more extreme than any other country particularly given the context of North Korea being shut down um, largely anyway normally um, and the sort of like border restrictions also ex ex extend to uh, sort of uh, its international into the waters that it owns and it sort of uh, shut uh, and stopped people going into waters and in September the country was forced to apologize after South Korea uh, said it had shot and burned uh, the body of a South Korean official who had strayed into North Korean waters uh, and North Korea apologized for that um, and there have also been re reports from intelligence officials around the world of sort of shoot to kill policies for people going towards the borders altogether. So, I mean, as you outlined at the start, like a lot, I mean, a lot of the things that we are missing out on, like international travel and things like that, are things that are almost impossible for North Koreans generally in their day-to-day -day lives, even before the pandemic. What has the impact been on, from the people you've spoken to? What sense do you get of what the impact has been on the people living there um, during the pandemic and, and what it is likely to be like if there is, an, in fact, an outbreak and if the case numbers are wrong that we're hearing? Yeah, it's it's a good point, and uh, to caveat that, and it will come on to this a little bit further on. It's 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 some of what is going on is a mystery, but uh, from people that uh, are are in the know about this, we generally know that uh, while North Korea has a purported universal uh, healthcare system, it isn't reliably accessible to a lot of people uh, all the time. So studies have found that the country's universal healthcare system has large disparities and that many people struggle to obtain healthcare from the state, particularly those that are considered uh, in the lower classes. Uh, so one of the people that we spoke to for this who who's uh, uh, been watching the country very closely uh, and has sort of greater knowledge on this says uh, that more pe most people generally don't have access to hand sanitizers or soaps much less PPE uh, and many people do live in very close quarters the the accommodation and housing that is provided and available is uh, can often be cramped and sort of like very much uh, lots of people uh, nearby which are obviously not knowing what we know about how the uh, how coronavirus spreads ideal conditions for controlling an epidemic if one ex was to exist in the country um and the people that i've been speaking to are very worried about sort of like how the pandemic has potentially made life worse for the people living in north korea overall um and one way that we can sort of glimpse uh, at least what the what the country is saying and telling people uh, is through its state published media which is some of which is accessible to the outside world when it's uh, made available and has been sort of observed by uh, lots of different groups looking at this overall uh, and the large message or couple of messages coming from uh, North Korean state media has been that the country has been very keen to say it's been doing very well uh, and it's also pointed out the spiraling death uh, count around the world uh, when one city was locked down in uh, in this in the autumn last year party propaganda said the state had established a strict and flawless anti-epidemic measure uh, to uh, to keep the city locked down uh, even though the case that was allegedly uh, being investigated there was never confirmed to happen um, and in one in November one of the country's newspapers said that the country must maintain an ironclad barrier one of the things that people I spoke to said um, is that the country's uh it has told its citizens that of the dangers of the pandemic and that it has been very sort of upfront and unusual one person said in a way of uh explaining what is this what is going on and some information about the virus but also on the sort of like on the on the flip side of that it's also been very paranoid and people said that it's sort of overreacted in some ways to to the pandemic so it's warned that smokers are of a higher risk of contracting covid19 and that migratory birds or even snowfall could potentially spread the virus uh, and one report by an independent organization that uh, reports on North Korea NK News said uh, when 
um, when it was talking about the potential of snow uh, transmitting the virus, it, the advice given to people was to wear masks and glasses and a cap outside to protect themselves, but generally to stay away from the snow. Um, so, yeah, there's been a lot of different messages coming out of the government. So if the country is pumping out all this propaganda and says there have been no cases, we know that the borders have closed, we know there have been cases in, in cities, people reporting, you know, people living in cramped circumstances. Obviously, North Korea isn't exactly a bubble, um, so that there are likely to be cases. But, but who, who do you actually, how, how do you get information? How do you, who do you believe in, in all of this? Because it must be difficult to know what exactly is happening if there's no one on the ground to necessarily report it. Exactly, yeah. And this is one of the uh, biggest challenges around reporting around North Korea, and not just for, for journalists, but anybody sort of watching the country and sort of like internationally as well. Uh, and as we said, sort of the border uh, being closed is one of the uh, sort of uh, big... Uh, issues about sort of getting information out of North Korea. So uh, normally a lot of ways that uh, we get information about what's happening on the ground in, in normal times is by people uh, defecting or leaving the country uh, and then sort of going, uh, most cases, traveling through China and into South Korea where uh, where they are then sort of uh, treated and speak to uh, NGOs and groups that are sort of like uh, sort of help to um, sort of acclimatize them to sort of life outside of North Korea. Um, and because of the border closes, there's been a, dra a, a dramatic uh, decrease in the amount of people leaving North Korea. So uh, recent figures that were published uh, from South Korea show that just 229 people entered South Korea from the North in 2020, which is an all-time low. Uh, in 2019, the figure stood at 1,047. A few years ago, it was in the 2000s, 3000s. Um, and a lot of the people that did enter uh, South Korea in 2020 uh, also may have left North Korea before 2020 and before the pandemic because the amount of time it takes to travel and get to South Korea overall. So that, this is the key source of our understanding of what happens in North Korea. And it's basically been limited because of the borders closing. Um, and also humanitarian groups and foreign diplomats have all left the country, basically, um, because of uh, various reasons, political reasons, uh, and also just sort of other barriers to sort of working there at the moment so those sources of information about what normally happens in Korea haven't come out and uh, it it really means that what happens on the ground is remaining a bit of a mystery there are unanswered questions about potential outbreaks um, there there have been 30 odd thousand people that have been put into quarantine uh, in North Korea um, we don't know the sort of like the detailed on the conditions that they were in and also there's questions about medical supplies which are often sort of provided through humanitarian aid and other groups that way um, so one thing that we do know though is that the vaccine uh, is the country wants the vaccine so North Korean hackers have been identified to have been uh, attempting to break into some of the producers of the vaccine and try and get information about it but also the country has been quietly asking for help through uh, programs which help uh, are been put in place to help uh, low-income and poor countries get the vaccine but one of the things though is this could last a long time so it's uh, analysis has sort of estimated that it might be 2022 or 2023 until North Korea gets any vaccine uh, at a large scale um, which is a long time to be living in these extended lockdown conditions and uh, sort of more isolated than North Korea is even in normal times from the world. And concerns that the North Korea watchers that you spoke to, one thing that came up was the knock-on effect of this, that life in North Korea is already incredibly difficult and people are controlled by a regime that is absolutely brutal. That's likely, we're fairly sure, has increased dramatically during the pandemic as North Korea tries to control the potential of any outbreak. But from the people that you were speaking to, there's a risk that that extra level of control and reduction in liberty continues, not just until the people are vaccinated, but for a long time to come if the state sees a benefit in it. Yeah, definitely. So there are potential few uh, longer term impacts. So uh, one result of a lot of the propaganda that people I was speaking to were saying uh, is that the uh, this could be a, a political gain for the regime. Uh, they've seen uh, large 
death tolls from other countries and things like that and then within North Korea uh, led to believe uh, and as far as we know uh, there have been zero cases or deaths um, so that obviously looks very good from a sort of like internal political perspective but in terms of the the broader uh, picture yeah there are concerns that people uh, have around sort of yeah if these conditions become normalized and the country can uh, to some extent survive and uh, isn't impacted in in too many big ways on a sort of international scale then maybe these uh maybe these harsher harsher conditions will become the new normal uh to, to use a phrase that uh we've used a, a lot of times so still to be seen but it's it seems that conditions and people are concerned about conditions for normal people living there the human toll may be worse than it already was Absolutely. And and as you say, if it is true that there have been no cases and no deaths, or at least a very low number of them, then that really does strengthen North Korean propaganda and give the country the ability to argue that its way of doing things is the right way of doing things, um, which is an incredibly powerful tool in a state that is often seen as on the verge of collapse. Uh, final story this week, a bit of a change of gear, Amit. Um, it's about stupid advertising. Tell us more. Always bringing the hard-hitting, uh, hard-hitting stories to the podcast um, from the culture section. Yeah, so in the before times when we could go on trains and you know to tube stations and stuff, you might have noticed a design trend overtaking some of the adverts, or you might have even noticed it on your lockdown walks on you know bus stations and billboards. So these are adverts which are very flat, very geometric, very figurative. They've got lots of blocks of solid colours and kind of strange human-like figures with bendy arms and, you know, no facial features. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? These these kind of colourful, bright, kind of fairly vacuous adverts that have just been everywhere. So they've been used by companies ranging from Money Farm to the train line to the Viagra delivery service Get Eddy. They're being used by brands like Slack, Salesforce, Robinhood, WeTransfer, all using the same style as do many of their competitors. Um they've become a bit of a trope in the design world and they've been dubbed corporate Memphis. This design style has been dubbed corporate Memphis and it's starting to get on designers' nerves. Why on earth is this happening? Why would all of these very, very different companies want to put up adverts that not just look the same, but look rubbish? Yeah, so I, I mean, I guess you have to put yourself in the mindset of a, a new startup. So say, you, you know, you've just founded a startup and you're reinventing mortgages or, you know, revolutionising insurance or disrupting the world of you know whatever it might be and you've got an app and a website and you're about to roll out your first big marketing campaign and you need to come up with a visual identity that represent, represents what your company is all about and obviously it needs to be fun because you know you're not like those big old companies that have been dominant in the sector for, for years you know you're doing something fresh and different uh, and it needs to be inclusive you know you want everyone to be able to see themselves in the design you don't want to focus on a particular type of person or group of people you want it to be kind of as vague as possible to appeal to the widest group of people uh, but the main concern is that most of all it needs to be kind of cheap and it needs to be versatile so that you can use it small in newspaper ads but you can also use it kind of blown up to the size of a billboard and a tube station now corporate corporate memphis designs the designs of the type i was talking about earlier they're, they're quite inoffensive they're quite easy to pull off um you know, and, and, and while they've, they've kind of started off in the kind of the startup world and, you know, tech marketing and UX design, the trend is now consuming the visual world at large. So if this is something that is pretty simple, why, why are designers uh, and others involved in this uh, world so upset about its views? So partly it's because it's, it's led to this kind of massive homogenization of the internet's visual culture is, is how one person we spoke to put it. So, you know, if every company has the same branding, then websites will start to look the same. And, and the internet goes from being quite a kind of vibrant, different, quirky place where, you know, I mean, remember in the 90s when you'd get like kind of neon flashing lights and things like that when you went or like auto playing music. I'm not saying we should go back to that world, but, you know, you don't want every website to look exactly the same or every company to look the same. And then the second problem is that kind of shady companies, so one designer we spoke to talked about letting agents in his hometown, are starting to use the design tropes to project a kind of fun, friendly image that they don't deserve. So um, Claire, Claire Evans, who's been collecting examples of corporate Memphis since 2018, says that it makes the big tech companies look friendly, approachable and concerned with human level interaction and community, which is largely the opposite of what they really are. So it's this kind of false uh, sense that they're projecting and that's what's really got designers upset. That name, Corporate Memphis, where where did that come from? I mean, is it a reference to the to the location? Is that a place where 
big tech companies are friendly, approachable and concerned with human level interaction. <laughs> oh no. No, it's, so it's actually nothing to do with the, the city. No, it's, um, so it's named after an Italian design and architecture group called Memphis, which was big in the 80s and then which kind of um, popularised this idea of kind of bright and colourful designs, which were kind of ran counter to the sort of, you know, design aesthetic of the, you know, 1980s and, and the decades around then when it was kind of all quite brutal and functional. Um, but the kind of current trend grew out partly out of a change that Apple made to its design uh, way back in 2013. So before 2013, Apple's um, iOS operating system was very skeuomorphic. So that means it was designed to mimic real world objects. So I don't know if you remember what the icon for the notes app used to look like on an iPhone, but it looked like a real notepad and it had a kind of had like the rings at the top and like other things like the contacts book had like a leather effect on it on the on the app on iPhone and things like that. Um, with like lifelike shading and textures. Um, but then in 2013, Apple had this like big redesign where they dropped all these kind of skeuomorphic elements in favor of a more flattened, simplified user interface. Um, so that's one, one strand to it. And then at the same time, tools like Adobe Illustrator, um, which made it easy to design kind of flat vector images with clean lines and clean colors, they became much more accessible to people just because computing power came cheaper as, you know, your laptop's much more running, capable of running Illustrator today than, than one you bought 10 years ago would have been. And then also image banks kind of full of vector images sprung up online. So sites like free pick and undraw um, meant that even users with no design background could download shapes and, you know, turn them into whatever they wanted to. Um, and then the name Corporate Memphis, yeah, comes from that Italian design group. It was coined by a guy called Mike Merrill, who was working in advertising when he kind of started to notice this deja vu effect of like flat, bright designs. Now, Merrill says that he's he's recognised that there's, there are basically two kind of different types of company that are using corporate Memphis. So there's like smaller companies that are engaging in what he calls pattern matching. So they kind of want to look cool and fun and different. So they kind of mimic the approach of startups that have succeeded in the past that are kind of cool and fun and different. I mean, you can see this in the branding of like challenger banks, right? And how they all kind of have coalesced around this sort of, you know, hey, we're, you know, young and hip and we drink, you know, Oatly and all this kind of stuff, right? And and um, so that's one aspect of it. And then the um, other aspect of it is the bigger tech companies that do it in a quite a cynical way. And they the IPO level tech companies use the same style because they want to look cooler and smaller and, and more more nimble than they actually are. And because it's lazy and because it's safe. It's weird, isn't it, that we've got this huge umbrella of companies from small startups to companies trying to go for several billion dollars on on an IPO and they all want to look the same. And is this partly because these companies want to look like they stand for something? You know, all, all, all the companies that people really, really relate to and that do deliver value for consumers, they stand for something and they're able to convey what they stand for in their advertising and it's really core to to what they are you know people love those brands um whereas no one really loves a company that's reinventing mortgages that they've never heard of so for those small startups it's it, it's kind of lazy and a bit of a way of hiding but what's the bigger problem here why does it really matter if we've got i mean you can see these companies coming a mile off it, it, it doesn't really feel like there's any anything particularly wrong with it it's just lazy and a bit uninteresting no yeah, so the argument that designers make, and I don't know the extent to which I actually personally agree with this. I, I'm sceptical the extent to which the design choices have this effect on us. But but what um, influential designer David Rudnick told us is that what makes corporate Memphis particularly insidious is that its worldview is misleading. So it, it kind of depicts the world as this sort of simple place that oversimplifies things with a kind of limited colour palette, a lack of depth, and offers a uniquely uncomplicated view of the world. Um, there's a particular variant of corporate Memphis that uses a visual technique called isometric projection. So it, it gives the viewer a slightly elevated perspective to create, you know, like a, a high street or a row of houses or something like that in the picture. Um, and this is interesting, he says, because there's no vanishing point. So it, it eliminates the variable of time within these images. So he's saying that this type of design is popular with fintech and mortgage companies because they have a benefit for playing down the passage of time if you're taking out a you know, a loan that you're going to be paying off for the next 25 or 35 years, then in your imagery, if you can play down the idea that, you know, time is passing with, with the kind of subtle design cues that you use, then then that's of benefit to the company. But more generally, like, it's about, yeah, the way the, the way the companies project themselves or the way they want to be seen versus how they actually are. You know, they allow these companies to offer an illusion of a world without hierarchies where everything is equal and everyone's, you know, 
the same and we're all kind of in this kind of flat colorful world and everything's friendly and you know nice and it's very much at odds with the way that the kind of ceos of tech companies talk in private you know it's it's this the internal silicon valley jargon of you know tech bros and you know disruption and constant fighting between competitors and you know driving the change and you know sparking the revolution and all this kind of stuff it is very much at odds with the way they project themselves as sort of friendly and colorful and and flat um and i think that's the real problem that designers have with it is this false image that they're presenting you wouldn't really have thought of it looking at an advert for someone promising a, a revolutionary new approach to mortgages. But it's interesting, right? If if people are making risky financial decisions, be it, you know, mortgaging themselves up to the eyeballs or investing in a way that they wouldn't necessarily have, have done so before, an advert that makes it look like something simple could be not dangerous, but misleading and could lead people down the wrong path, right? Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh I'm not sure whether I mean if you look at things like Klarna or like Wonga or things like that you know these are these are companies that are massively exploitative in terms of the interest rates they charge and, and the services they offer but they're kind of presented as like you know your mate or you know a friend or a friend who's just helping you about with a, helping you out with a bit of cash you know to tide you over to your next paycheck and actually no these companies are as you know as problematic as the big companies often they're owned by the big companies you know often they're they're uh, they're uh, you know morgan stanley's got like an investment app that's got some name that, and you'd never know they were linked right and it's it's often the same companies pulling the strings but using the kind of imagery of tech startups to present themselves in a way that's more palatable to to average users or to people that want to be seen as cool and hip and and you know supporting the little guy story of corporate memphis it's absolutely fascinating you've seen it everywhere even if you're barely leaving the house you've still definitely seen it now you know what it is and why it might not be as simple as it seems podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that story or anything else that we talked about on the podcast this week or any other week if you're listening back through the archives time for one of your emails now map Burgess, you've been rummaging through the inbox. Yeah, and we had an email from Maya and Boris, which says, Me and my husband love your podcast. Every time the intro and outro music plays, we dance around pretending it's a little party with you guys. Uh, they go on to say that, however, over the last three or four episodes, the outro music has been cropped, which makes them slightly sad. Uh, and they said, can we not crop the outro music? Uh, because they, there's not many occasions to party these days. Um, so yeah, we will make sure that that is not cropped off or anything at the end uh, of the podcast now. And I mean, it might even be playing uh, as I'm speaking. It, sh- it should be. If, you- if you've edited the podcast correctly, it should be the, the backing track beneath our voices right now. Um, it's rare that we get people emailing in saying that they like the podcast music. Um, mostly it's people saying, why haven't you changed your podcast music in 502 episodes? Um, but it's it's still here and it will probably be here for some while yet. So we're glad that some of you like it. Podcast at wired.co.uk. We love getting your emails. Please do write in and let us know what's on your mind. Thanks for listening and we will see you again next week. Take care. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.